When I became a follower of Jesus at the young age of 13, <clears throat> I can't really explain it to you, but something, something profound happened in my life and heart. Suddenly, the Bible, this book that seems so dull, so pointless, so lifeless to me, suddenly, I was on fire for it. I suppose you could say that the author, the divine author of this book was now living inside of me and, and giving me a profound desire to know his word. In fact, I saw the Bible now not as some dead words on a page, but I saw it honestly as like a love letter to me. And oh, I wanted to know what God had to say. And so at the age of 13, I began to memorize, without anyone prompting me or telling me, I began to memorize the book of James. And it was the first full book of scripture that I ever memorized. And oh, what a profound impact it made in my life and is still making in my life today. But here's what's curious to me. Why was I drawn to James? I mean, of all the books in the Bible, all the thousands and thousands of verses that I could have focused on, why, why this little letter in the New Testament called James? I've wondered about that. I believe that it was because the Holy Spirit was drawing me as a brand new Christian to the basics. The book of James is like a boot camp, really. You know what happens in boot camp, right? Many of you have been there. It's where you take a green soldier and turn him or her into a ready soldier, one who's ready for battle, properly trained, has the basics down. I think that's what God was doing in me as a new Christian in the book of James. And so we begin a new series today called Boot Camp Basics. We're going to take just six weeks and go through the book of James. Now, we won't be able to cover every verse there, but we do want to highlight some of those principles, some of those key basic lessons that you would get sort of in boot camp, spiritual boot camp. That's what this is. Because you see, 54 times in the book of James, he says, do this, don't do that, watch out for this, do this particular thing. It's incredibly practical. And I know one thing about basics. Basics are like the foundation of your Christian life. And while nobody ever oohs and ahs very much about a foundation of a house or a building, it's not real sexy, it's not real thrilling to focus on the foundation we want to focus on the decorations, on the facade, on the, what color is on the wall or whatever. But the foundation is the most important part. And if you have a faulty foundation, let me tell you, you're going to have some problems. So for six weeks, let's do the journey together, boot camp basics. And I want to begin today by a foundational piece that, wow, I don't know any way to put it to you. If you miss this foundational piece of your Christian life, sorry, but you're just going to be an inadequate soldier. You're not going to be well trained for the battle that you are in. 
So, let me try out a statement on you. See how you think about it. The best life, watch this now, look at this statement. The best life for me in the long run usually is not the easiest life for me right now. What do you think about that? I hope you would agree with that statement because it is almost always true. Uh, one easy illustration of this is in the area of finances. There are many people at Grace, I believe, that are financially smart. That is, they've taken the FPU class, Financial Peace University, and, and they're working those principles. They're eliminating debt. They're building that emergency fund. They are living within their means because they've created a realistic budget and they're keeping to that budget and they're putting some money away in investments and savings and they're also learning to give generously. They're smart financially. They're honoring God with the tithe. But you know what? That life, while it's the right way to live financially, would you agree that it's not the easiest way to live? When some of your friends, some of your buddies want to go to the club and they say, hey, come and join us, or they want to go to some swanky new restaurant that's very pricey, people who are living this life say, hey, we're so glad you asked. In fact, we're honored. We'd love to go. But we're, we're really living within our budget right now, and so we're going to have to beg off for tonight. But hey, maybe we can hang out next week at our place. That's not easy to do, but it's smart. Or you may see your friend at work who's got a brand new lease on a car with all the latest gadgets and features. And man, it looks great. But you, because you're living wisely now, you, instead of going into a lease, paying hundreds of dollars a month for this incredible car, you bought a used car. It's pretty modest because that's the one you could afford and pay cash for. It fits your budget. Now, if you ask which approach is going to be better financially in the long haul, the answer is a slam dunk. The couple that's living within their means, they're going to be a lot better off. They're going to be honoring God, and they have rewards, literally rewards, not just on earth, but in heaven for living that way. But it's not necessarily the easiest life now. To show that kind of restraint requires character and long-term thinking. So here's the statement again, it's on the screens, the best life for me in the long run usually is not the easiest life for me right now. And if you don't embrace that principle and really embrace it, your spiritual journey is going to be very, very frustrating. So here's what long haul thinking affirms. It affirms this. That God uses difficult things in our lives to grow, deepen, and shape us into the persons he wants us to be. The Christian life is definitely not the easiest life right now, but it is the best life both here and hereafter. God uses difficult things to shape us. 
Now, I was thinking about some of the difficult things that people at Grace are going to, through, and I began to make a list. I thought I might just write down six or seven, but I got carried away as my mind got going. So bear with me here. These are just the things off the top of my head that I could think of that I'm aware of directly that are going on right now. The recent loss of a job. The loss of a job a long time ago and being unable to find a new one. Children who are in rebellion against God. Financial disaster, job insecurity, bankruptcy, confusion about God's will for your vocation. All these things are going on as we speak. Abuse, both verbal and physical. Disobedient children who are out of control. In-law problems. Constant anxiety about the future. Insecurity over a personal inadequacy. Anguish over an, ad an adult child in prison. Tremendous disappointment over unfulfilled dreams. Discovery that your children are experimenting with drugs. Discovery that your spouse has had an affair. Desertion by a spouse. Divorce proceedings. Marital separation. Discovery of hidden vices in the family. A recent family crisis. Persons who are terminally ill. A spouse who is terminally ill. Grief over a spouse's death. Children with congenital health problems, intense frustration with where your life now is, the loss of a child through miscarriage, bitterness toward God, a parent who's dying, a family member who's mentally ill, fear of what tomorrow holds, and I'm just getting started. Hear me, all those things and many, many more are going on right now. Yikes. The struggle is very real. And what I'm saying to you today, if you're a real Jesus follower, and not just the phony kind, not just a quasi-Christian, not just a cotton candy Christian, if you're the real deal, you've got to adopt long-haul thinking. It's the only way to live the Christian life with excellence. So go on the journey with me. I want to quickly mention five things out of James chapter 1 that are important as we live out this long-haul thinking mentality. Number one, we've got to get our thinking straight because difficult things happen to everyone. I just read the list for you. Bad things happen to all different kinds of people. I'm stunned when I continue to hear from people that they believe God's job is to keep them from any kind of trouble. Here's how the thinking goes. God, I give my life to you, your job, God, it's your job now to protect me from all difficulties in life. But the scripture gives a very different story from that. For instance, we start reading in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Why were these believers scattered? It's because they were being persecuted. They were being hauled off and put in prison. Some had been beheaded. Others had been stoned. They were imprisoned. They had lost their jobs. They were being threatened. They literally ran for their lives. You talk about persecution. Look at what God says to do in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And I've often pointed out to you, it doesn't say if or maybe or 
you just might face trials. He says, when? It is a sure thing. Life is difficult, and real Christians are not exempt. Now, let me tell you what I'm not saying here. I'm not saying that because the struggle is real, you need to adopt a pessimistic attitude and just start always expecting the worst. I heard about one married couple, and the husband was just a mess when it came to being romantic. He didn't have a romantic bone in his body. He had never done anything tender for his wife. And so she'd just come to expect the worst. But this man went to a men's conference where he was challenged by the leaders there, listen, men, to be a real man, you got to be tough and tender, tough and tender. So he took it seriously. He took the challenge on. He decided, I'm going to learn to be tender and show soft side and, and kind side to my wife. And so he went and bought some beautiful flowers and he had the bouquet in his hands and he went home to his wife after the conference and he knocked on the door and he knocked and knocked and after quite a long time, his wife finally came to the door and she was a total mess and she broke into tears. He couldn't believe it. She said, oh, it's been a horrible day. The kids have been out of control. The vacuum cleaner broke and won't work. A pipe burst in the bathroom and the whole house flooded. I burned the toast and now you come home drunk. Yeah. You see, we can start expecting the worst. God wants us to be realistic but not pessimistic. Trouble is not an elective. It's a required course. And so if you live on this planet very long, you're going to have some unpleasant, difficult things happen to you. Some people are going to die. Some people are going to betray you. Folks may slander you and say bad things. You're going, trust me, you're going to be misunderstood if you live on this planet long enough. You're going to have disappointments and disillusionment and broken dreams. Aren't you happy you came to church today? Am I cheering you up or what? Yeah. Not pessimistic. That's realistic. And that's what God wants us to be. And James points out here, that these trials come in various ways. That's an interesting Greek word. Some have even translated it polka dot ways. I think a better translation might be multicolored ways. There's going to be all different types of problems. Some are going to have fender bender problems. Others are going to have head-on collision problems. Some are going to have blister-type problems. Others are going to have a coronary. One person is going to have his plans for tomorrow ruined by a rainstorm. Another's hopes for a lifetime are going to be ruined by a disease. But trouble hits everyone. Get your thinking straight on that. Let me just share a few verses. Matthew 6. Therefore, Jesus said this, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Or how about Acts 14, 22? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Did you know that? That's what scripture teaches. We're going to go through many hardships on this journey toward heaven. 
1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be surprised, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening. This isn't strange when hard times occur. It's just par for the course. So, if anyone, listen friend, if anyone gives you the idea that once you become a Christian, your troubles are over, they're either speaking from an empty head or a closed Bible. You can mark that one down. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. So let's get our thinking straight about that. The second principle I see here is that, and this gets a little brighter, thank God, we can rejoice in the hard times because they can make you better. Now, here's the way this works. You can do as many surveys as you want, but here's what you will always find to be true for about 98% of the people. Here it is, here it is, here it is. We grow faster and deeper during hard times than we do during normal times. I'm seeing heads nod. You found that to be true, haven't you? Yeah. There's something about difficulties, trials, that just accelerate our growth. That's why James dares to say in verse 2, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, if you were to ask me, Pastor X, what do you think is the biggest inadequacy overall with American Christianity? I got a ready answer for you. I believe our biggest defect in American Christianity is we do not have an adequate theology of suffering. J.C. Penney, the great businessman, once said, there are two great motivators in life. What are they? Jesus Christ and adversity. Christian, you're kind of like a tea bag. You say, what do I possibly have in common with a tea bag? You're not worth much until you've been in hot water. Yeah, that's right. Corny, I know, but so true. You show me a Christian who hasn't been in some hot water, some tough times, and I'll show you a person who doesn't have a clue. But we can rejoice in these, not because we consider the trial a joy. No, 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 no. It's the result of the trial that is a joy because it sets our focus on heaven. So I got news for you today. Everybody listening to me right now is either in the midst of a trial, you've just come out of a trial, or you're about to go into a trial. Hallelujah. Again, aren't you glad you came to church today? Oh, I know you are. These are boot camp basics. Show me a Christian that doesn't get this basic training, and I'll show you a Christian that's going to be weak and vacillating and tossed about by every wind of doctrine. They're going to be here today, gone tomorrow, so fickle it'll be unbelievable. You got to get this lesson down. It's a 
basics of boot camp when it comes to Christianity. But here's a third principle. As you're thinking about this long-haul thinking and all the, the difficulty of this life, ask God for wisdom because there may be something you can learn. Now, I've intentionally understated that because there's almost always something we can learn through our trial. But we need wisdom. Folks, the prayer that I pray more than any other prayer Do you know what it is? I wear this next verse we're about to look at, I wear it out. There's seldom a week that goes by that I don't intensely seek God for what this verse is talking about. Here it is. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him or her. Do you need wisdom? Hey, do you remember that list I read earlier? And I, I, was, I was just skimming the surface of things that I could think of off the top of my head that people are going through in this congregation. Can I tell you something about every one of those situations? The people, the dear people of this church family who are in those situations, they need wisdom. Not facts, necessarily. Oh, facts might be helpful. You might could use a little more knowledge, but can I tell you, there's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is okay, but it just fills your head with information. Wisdom is the ability to take that information and actually apply it on the road test of life. And wisdom is what we need every single day. Can I tell you something? Many of the decisions that you're facing, many of the dilemmas that you're in are not slam dunk issues. That is, they're not absolutely right or absolutely wrong. Amen? That's why they're so hard. If they were absolutely right or absolutely wrong, no big deal. It'd be easy to make the decision, wouldn't it? What you need is wisdom. Most of the dilemmas of life require wisdom. And that's why I tell you, I wear this verse out because we need wisdom. The manager of a boat dock checked his watch and then called out over the megaphone, Boat 99, returned to the dock. Forgot about it, waited about 10 minutes. Nothing had happened. He looked out over the lake again and called out over the megaphone, Boat 99, please return now to the dock. And his assistant came up and said, Sir, uh, we only have 75 boats here. There is no Boat 99. The manager looked out and said, Boat 66, are you in trouble? (laughs) In this upside down world that you live in, you need wisdom to navigate. Godly wisdom. Without it, we lose our perspective entirely. By the way, the author of this book practiced what he preached, the human author, James. James was known as a prayer warrior. Can I read you a brief excerpt from Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History? It's a 
great history book of the early church. Here's what Eusebius wrote in his book, Ecclesiastical History, about James. He was in the habit of entering the temple alone and was often found upon his bended knees and interceding for the forgiveness of the people so that his knees became as hard as camels in consequence of his habitual supplication and kneeling before God. And indeed, on account of his exceeding great piety, he was called the just. James the just. He was a prayer warrior and he had wisdom. Later, he's going to say in this little letter in chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask God. When Solomon was crowned successor to his father, King David, he had the weight of the world on his shoulders because there was a lot of turmoil in the kingdom, and he felt the pressure. And he had a dream in which the Lord said to Solomon, ask for whatever you want me to give you. And God was pleased that Solomon did not ask for long life or for the death of his enemies or for great wealth. And God gave him long life. And God gave him wealth. And God gave him incredible wisdom in order to rule. We need it. You and I need wisdom today. You need it this very day in situations you face when you leave here. But there's one big qualifier I see he, he gives here, starting in verse 6. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Translated, if you pray for wisdom, you better be ready to act on what God gives you. And that brings me to the fourth principle I see here. Continue doing what you know to do because when you're depressed, inactivity is your enemy. There's something about the struggle. There's something about being in a crisis that tends to depress a lot of people. It's tiring. It's exhausting. And here's what many do. They become inactive. They give up and sit around moping and thinking about the problem, and the problem gets magnified, at least in their mind. That's why Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1 to a group of Christians who are going through intense suffering in the city of Rome. He says, therefore, gird your minds for action. Don't you dare become stagnant when hard times come. Don't you dare get stymied and stuck in a rut. You keep putting one foot in front of another. I like this little poem. I heard it years ago. Two frogs fell into a can of cream, or so, I, or so it's been told. The sides of the can were shiny and steep. The cream was deep and cold. Oh, what's the use, said number one. Tis fate, no helps around. Goodbye, my friend, goodbye. Sad world. And weeping still, he drowned. Ah, but number two of sterner stuff, dog paddled in surprise. 
the while he wiped his creamy face and dried his creamy eyes. I'll swim a while at least, he said, or so it has been said. It wouldn't really help the world if one more frog is dead. One hour or two, he kicked and swam. Not once he stopped to mutter, but kicked and swam and swam and kicked, then hopped out via butter. (laughs) I like that. That frog kept moving. And the last thing this old world needs is another Christian casualty, shipwrecked and sunk because they simply stopped moving on the seas of suffering. Keep doing what you know to do. You said, Pastor Rex, but Pastor Rex, do you know how bad this situation is I'm in? I mean, it's horrible. I've got so many doubts and anxieties. The stress is unbelievable. It's about to blow the top of my head off. What should I do? Put one foot in front of the other. And you keep moving. You keep doing what you know to do. You keep doing what is right and good and godly and noble. And one of these days, you're going to hop out via butter. (laughs) God is going to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine. But there's one final step in long-haul thinking that I want to share. And that is we should endure hardship because endurance brings a reward. You know what I think? I've been at this a good amount of time now. And as I I reflect back on the years of ministry at Grace, I've got a confession to make. My confession to you today is I don't think I don't think I've talked nearly enough about rewards. Because as I read the Bible, wow, there's all kinds of stuff about rewards. Rewards that we should look forward to, not just in this life, but in the next. So listen to what the text says in verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, Because when he or she has stood the test, they're going to receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Reward. Crown of life. There's going to be a reward for what you're going through. So endure. In 1954, the Milwaukee Braves and the Cincinnati Reds played each other on the first game of baseball season. Everybody was kind of excited because there were two rookies that were kind of debuting. It was their first major league game. And the rookie for the Cincinnati Reds was a young guy named Jim Greengrass. Isn't that a great name for a baseball player? Jim Greengrass. And wow, what a day he had. On his first day in the major leagues, game number one, He batted a 1,000. He had four doubles that day. Four doubles. And everybody's going, wow, this guy's going to be great. 
But the other rookie for the Milwaukee Braves did not do so well. <laughs> On his first day in the majors, he went 0 for 4. He struck out, in other words, four times in a row. Not a very good start for Hank Aaron, who went on to set the record for career home runs. Listen, I don't know what's happened to you in the past. What I want to know is which direction are your feet pointed today? That's what I want to know. I'm not saying the past is unimportant. I'm not saying it's not significant. I'm not saying it wasn't bad. What I want to know is which direction are your feet pointed? Because it's not how you started that matters. It's how you end. It's how you end. Most of us believe that Walter Payton was the greatest professional running back in NFL history. He, in his amazing career, gained nine miles <laughs> on the football field. What a running back. But you know what? Every 4.6 yards, he got knocked down. Every 4.6 yards on average, Walter Payton got knocked down. But you know what? He got back up. And he kept running toward the goal. I say to you, brothers and sisters, that the best life for you in the long run is usually not the easiest life for you right now. And the best Christians I know, the ones I admire and respect the most, have been knocked down. Uh -huh. But they didn't fixate on that and they didn't let that define them. They got back up and they pointed their feet in the right direction and they kept putting one foot in front of the other because they saw the reward. That is long haul thinking. Father, help us to be people who embrace and really live out long haul thinking. Thank you that your word teaches it so clearly and that we can have the understanding that even though the struggle here is very real and the pain is sometimes almost unbearable and the difficulties can daunt us, Thank you that we have our eyes fixed on you. And thank you that we have your example, who for the joy set before you endured the cross, despising the shame. And like you, let us be victorious because we live and move and have our being in your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.